He remains an A-list star of the criminal underworld. A gangster so wily that he travelled the world, amassed a hundred million euro fortune, and died not from a bullet, but from his love of a sun-kissed tan. Dubbed the Pimpernel for his ability to elude the law, Mickey Green's life personifies the changing face of organised crime over five decades. From the Costa del Crime to California and the hills of Colombia to the rugged Irish countryside, he travelled the world while negotiating drug deals, bat scams and sensational robberies. Written by Jenny Friel, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited and narrated by me, Nicola Talent, this is a three-part Crime World special. The Life and Times of Mickey Green. Part 3. It's clear that Green enjoyed his time here. The closeness to friends and family in the UK, mixing in with Irish criminals whose fortunes were on the rise, and of course, the constant socialising in wild times. It's said that a team of professional cleaners were unable to tackle the stains left on the cream carpet of his Docklands apartment after he fled. It was so stained with booze and cigarette ash that it had to be ripped out. It was after one of those big nights out in April 1995 that everything in Ireland changed for Green. He was driving his Bentley along Usher's Quay in Dublin city centre when he smashed into a taxi, killing the driver, a man named Joe White. Green immediately fled the scene but was caught by two guardi on patrol and he was taken to a station but refused to give a urine sample to test if he was drunk. In the meantime, it took firemen 45 minutes to cut taxi man and father of nine Joe White from his car. And he later died in hospital from shock and from severe blood loss. Green was charged with dangerous driving and causing White's death, but he escaped with a £950 fine. It would emerge a few years later during the trial of notorious drug baron and Britain's biggest ever supergrass, the curiously named Michael Michael, that Green had actually paid an English woman who worked as a drug courier and as an Irishman to lie about the crash in order to get him off. And that just shows the reach and power Green had. That Michael, the one-time head of a London-based criminal gang called The Organisation, was willing to help him out. Michael was involved in drug smuggling, prostitution, money laundering, and he also had a big cocaine habit, which helped lead to his downfall. After getting arrested, Michael had turned supergrass in 1998, and his evidence led to 34 people being jailed for a total of 170 years. His information also helped bring down 26 different drug gangs. During his high-profile trial, it was revealed that Michael had travelled to Dublin to bail Green out when he was arrested after the hit-and-run on Usher's Quay. It was him who also arranged for one of his female drug runners and the Irishman to give evidence for Green. In a statement to the court, the woman explained how she had worked for Green and that she was asked to give evidence on his behalf because he didn't want to be sued by Joe White's family, the man he had killed. 
She told how she had conspired with Green and others to say that she was travelling in a car behind his Bentley on the night of the head-on crash. She pretended that she had an Irish boyfriend, the second witness, who she said was in the car with her at the time. Green even paid for her to travel back and forth to Ireland on the ferry a few times so she'd know the layout of the roads where the crash had happened if she was questioned. He brought her and her boyfriend to Usher's Quay and made them study the surroundings so they could accurately describe them in court. The woman said she never gave evidence as her statement was accepted as sufficient, but her boyfriend lied openly to Dublin District Court. For this elaborate ruse, the woman was paid a cup of coffee and a couple of hundred pounds. The revelation that Green had gone to such efforts to get off on being charged with the unlawful killing of Joe White came as no surprise to his widow, Margaret. I interviewed her back then, and she told me that while it wouldn't bring Joe back, she'd like to see some justice being done. She believed Green was out of his mind on drink when he killed her husband and explained how difficult the years since his death had been on her and their nine children. I remember she was heartbroken and angry that Green didn't even spend one day in jail for what he did. She believed that he knew how to operate and that if it had been the other way around and it was her husband who had killed someone while drink driving, that he'd be in jail to this day. Margaret told me that she was left with just a widow's pension to raise her family on. She never received a penny from Green's insurance company or from the gangster himself. And Green who was believed to have been worth up to £100 million at various points in his long career, never said sorry or offered to help them out. Margaret told me how Joe had just taken his last fare that night and he was on his way home to his family when Green broke a light at the bridge off of Usher's Quay. Someone was able to tell her later that after he crashed into Joe's taxi, Green apparently got out of his Bentley and said to the people with him, this is serious, let's get out of here. The police had called to Margaret's home later that morning, just before 7am, to inform her that Joe had been in an accident and that she was go to go to St James's Hospital. But when she got there, the doctors had to tell her that, that he was dead. Margaret had no clue who Mickey Green was. She only found out that he was believed to be a major criminal when a journalist told her. She couldn't bring herself to go to his trial. She was still too grief-stricken. But she did go to the inquest and remembered him sitting there with a load of henchmen around him. He never made any attempt to acknowledge her. There was no condolence, card, no effort to say sorry for her loss. And he certainly never offered to help her out financially. The youngest of their nine children was just 12 years old when Joe was killed. And bringing them up on her own was, as she admitted to me, very tough. But she had to learn to cope and just to get on with it. Because what else can you do when you have kids? The devastation she felt at her husband's death could be crippling at times. And there were days she struggled to get out of bed, she told me. The idea that Green was then still living as a free bird back in Spain, definitely made it harder for her to cope. And Margaret said she could never understand why he got such a minor, dangerous driving conviction for killing Joe, along with this paltry fine of £950 and a two-year driving ban. But, you see, when you're one of Europe's most powerful gangsters, 
With friends and acquaintances who are willing to do anything for you for the right price, it can be a sharp lesson in how crime often does pay. But it wasn't all good news for Green. Now that his cover was blown and people had made the connection between this smooth-talking Englishman and the grimy world of drug smuggling, he found he was no longer welcome among the horsey set. Then came the news that the IRA were sniffing around. There were rumours that the terrorists were possibly planning to kidnap him, to either demand a ransom from his girlfriend Anita or to persuade him to cut them in on his drug-dealing action. There were also some reports at the time that the IRA were unhappy at how little regard Green had shown to Joe White's widow and to their children, that he'd made no effort to financially recompense them for their loss. Whatever the truth was, Green wasn't hanging around to find out. He knew how dangerous they could be and how much money they could demand. So he fled back to trusty old Spain with his 21-year-old Irish girlfriend in tow. And like all those other times... He was forced to go on the run. He left behind a fortune in property and assets. It took a few years, but the Criminal Assets Bureau got some serious satisfaction in September 2002 when Green's Docklands party pad with two underground parking spaces went up for sale. An anonymous overseas buyer fought off two other bidders at the Low and Associates auction in the Rathmines office, snapping it up for €550,000, which was €50,000 over the asking price. The mansion in County Meath was withdrawn from the same auction after only attracting a top bid of €900,000. But a few months later, it sold privately for over €1 million. Under the law... All the money made from the sales of Green's properties was placed in a revenue account for seven years before going into the coffers of the exchequer. The then cab boss, Chief Superintendent Felix McKenna, was delighted with the results, telling journalists that this is what we're set up to do, to target and confiscate the assets of so-called organised crime and the criminals that generate huge profits from criminal activity, in this case, drug trafficking. Set up in 1996 by the then Justice Minister Nora Owen as a response to the murder of journalist Veronica Guerin, the Criminal Assets Bureau was formed to target the ill-gotten fortunes of criminals such as John Gilligan, Jerry Hutch and Brian Meehan, the man convicted of murdering Guerin. The journalist had been writing about these men for a couple of years. Irish drug dealers who kept their hands clean stayed beyond the reach of prosecutors and raked in the money, flaunting their wealth on big houses and cars. Cab was given a serious amount of power. The burden of proof was dramatically lowered and not having a conviction for any crime no longer offered protection. If the cab chief has well-founded suspicions, it can seize the proceeds of crime through the civil courts. John Gilligan was its first target, They seized his Kildare Equestrian Centre in October of 1996. But they've not only targeted gangsters, but pursued various public figures for unpaid taxes, such as former Mayor Michael Keating and and the ex-Minister Ray Burke. They've also investigated IRA finances. CAB broadened its remit to investigate foreign criminals hiding in Ireland, which led to the seizure of all sorts of assets, from warehouses to building sites, cars and yachts, lots of which belonged to Mickey Green. 
Now settled back on the Costa del Sol, however, Green had other, much more immediate concerns to preoccupy himself with. So remember Michael Michael, the guy I told you who provided him with crucial witnesses for the hit and run at the Keys in Dublin? Well, like Bertie Smalls before him, Michael was singing like a canary to London police. And top of the list of those he was ratting on was Mickey Green. It was while living in Ireland that Green had started using Michael's money laundering services. And after turning supergrass, Michael gave customs every last detail about all the financial transactions and bank accounts operated by Green. Michael also claimed that he and Green were paying a Scotland Yard detective to hand over any reports and logs the police had on them and their criminal associates. So he told police that Green had snuck into Britain twice in 1997 with his Irish girlfriend, Anita, using a false passport in the name of Michael Durant, where he met with heavyweight drug distributors at some of London's top hotels. Michael didn't hold anything back, claiming to officers that Green had been behind the high-profile executions of two senior members of the notorious Clerkenwell crime mob, also known as the Adams family or the A-team. The syndicate was, and still is, one of the most powerful crime gangs in Britain. Set up in the 1980s by brothers Terry, Tommy and Patsy Adams, who were born to Irish parents in Islington, there was no kind of crime that they weren't involved in. And perhaps it's this link to the Adams family that illustrates just how ruthless Mickey Green was. That it wasn't just luck or charm that allowed him to lead the kind of life that he did. And that he wasn't just some sort of a cheeky criminal who made his money by being a little bit bold. Because the Adams family are rough, tough and merciless. Police in the UK now consider them to be far worse than anything that has gone before, including Green's former one-time peers, the Cray Twins. The three brothers, all now in their 60s, are the eldest of George and Florence Adams' 11 children. George, a lorry driver from Northern Ireland, raised his family in a fairly deprived social housing estate in Islington in North London. All three boys left school by 15 and they started out in crime by extorting money from local market stall holders with, with threats of violence. They moved on quickly to armed robbery and their empire began to grow. Terry was the brains behind the operation, Patsy the enforcer and Tommy was the money man. From the beginning, the gang was notoriously violent and their signature hit was shooting people while joyriding motorbikes. They were also infamous for kneecapping anyone who crossed them and thought to be responsible for up to 25 murders. If you were doing a job and you had the Adams family behind you, even just the name, it meant no one was going to fuck about with you, an insider once told me. Everyone would know they were going to get paid and everything was go as smoothly as possible. Among their alleged hits was gangland veteran mad Frankie Fraser, who was blasted in the head outside a London club. A former henchman for the Cray Twins, Frankie was lucky to survive, but he refused to tell the police what had happened or why, even though he'd actually lost part of his mouth in the shooting. 
Another unsolved killing they've been linked to is the murder of former British high jump champion Claude Mosley, who was working for them as a drug dealer in the late 1980s. Suspected of skimming off some of the profits for himself, the Adams brothers enlisted the help of one of their enforcers, Gilbert Winter, to sort it out. And the story goes that he allegedly cut Mosley in half with the samurai sword in 1994. Winter stood trial for murder but was acquitted when the chief prosecution witness refused to give evidence. A few years later, Winter then disappeared and his body was rumoured to have been encased in concrete somewhere under the Millennium Dome in 1998. And it's his murder that Michael Michael claimed Mickey Green was responsible for. They were certainly moving in the same circles. Drugs were a big part of the Adams family crime portfolio. They had links to the Colombian cartels and during the height of their power in the late 1980s, they were said to be in charge of most of the cannabis, the ecstasy and the cocaine coming into London. As prosecutor Andrew Mitchell QC said at Terry's 2007 trial, they're the most feared and revered organised criminals. He comes with a pedigree as one of the family whose name had a currency all of its own in the underworld. According to Michael, however, this fearsome reputation didn't stop Mickey Green from exacting his own revenge when he believed he'd been double-crossed in a drug deal. Mind you, the Adams brothers were possibly too busy with legal woes to deal with Green as they might usually have. After decades of being apparently untouchable, their criminal network was finally starting to crumble as a result of money laundering and financial crime legislation, similar to the tax case which snared American mobster Al Capone. Terry was jailed for seven years in 2007. He was ordered to pay £750,000 for money laundering after a 10-year, £10 million investigation into his finances after MI5 bugged his home. He was released a few years later, but then imprisoned again when he breached the terms of his release. And he now claims to live in poverty with his actress wife, Ruth, in a London council flat and could only afford to pay £15 a week of the remaining balance. The court heard evidence, however, that Terry, just like all those other criminals, can't resist splashing the cash. There were regular meals out at expensive restaurants, trips to the opera and spa club memberships. The other brothers, by the way, have since been jailed too. Tommy got seven years in 2017 after he was convicted of laundering nearly £250,000. And Patsy was jailed for nine years for shooting one of their gang members, who he suspected of being a police cross. But even from behind bars, their legacy of fear is believed to have continued. And it's one of the reasons Mickey Green possibly decided to live out the rest of his days on the Costa del Sol, staying out of the Adams family way, and he never made any serious attempt at moving anywhere else. For as well as taking care of their hitman, Gilbert Winter, Michael Michael also claimed to police that Green was behind the killing of their underworld accountant and diamond merchant, Sally Nahomi. The money man was shot dead in 1998 outside his exclusive gated home in Southgate in North London. Michael told police that both men had ripped Green off, supplying him with wood instead of cannabis. The police didn't follow up that particular nugget of information from Michael, but they did eventually arrest Green in February 2000 using the other evidence that he had provided. 
In yet another film-worthy episode, UK customs agents followed Green's lawyer, who happened to be Irish, to the Swanky Ritz Hotel in Barcelona, where he was set to have a meeting with them. Officers swooped in and picked Green up, and with the help of the Spanish police, he was transported to the country's most secure prison in Madrid. Forces in both the UK and Spain hailed it as the end to Green's spectacular career. A date for his extradition hearing was set and it was thought that Green was on his way home to finally face the music. News of his arrest was reported all over the globe. He was dubbed a Mr Big of the drugs world and crime journalists wrote about how this former bank robber was now wanted for questioning in the UK in connection with the multi-million pound drug running and money laundering operation. It was also claimed that he was wanted for questioning about links to corruption allegations involving a Scotland Yard elite unit. Papers breathlessly reported how he had evaded capture for more than 15 years, using a variety of names and disguises, while also managing to live it up on the Costa del Sol and pose as a wealthy and retired businessman in Ireland. While he languished in the Madrid jail, it emerged that Green had invested millions of euro into legitimate businesses in Spain. He could easily have lived the extravagant life he loved on the earnings, but he told associates that he just couldn't resist the buzz of committing crime. And just when it looked like it was all over for him, the pimpernel struck once more. A few months after his arrest, a Spanish court refused to extradite him, insisting that the UK customs didn't have enough to prosecute him. By June 2001, their case against him was dropped because of insufficient evidence, and he was released a free man again. Of course, there were rumours of bribery and of corruption. Green returned to his beloved Costa del Sol, even though there were at least a dozen or so outstanding arrest warrants against him from a selection of different countries around the world. So what was his secret? We'll most likely never know. Like brown bread Fred, the former Cray twins henchman I mentioned at the start, proper gang members rarely break the omerta. And certainly not unless it's for their own advantage, of course, to get off a sentence or at least spend less time in jail. And even then, they know it's a dangerous game, ratting on your comrades. If that's how you do your business, you're better off keeping it to yourself and let people think it's down to luck or buying off bent coppers. For the next two decades, Mickey Green lived in a luxury hillside villa near Estepona on his beloved Costa del Sol. But in an ironic twist of fate, it looks like all that sun was the thing that finally got him in the end. In early 2020, he was diagnosed with skin cancer. He died six months later, in the July of the same year. And by his side was his long-term and devoted Irish girlfriend, Anita. His funeral was in Marbella. And one friend told a reporter afterwards how his death came as a real shock to anyone who still knew him. He didn't want people to know he was ill and that was so typical of him as he was very secretive, they explained. Very few people knew who he even was. He was almost a mythical figure in the underworld. According to this source, Green was no longer active on the crime scene and was living off his vast fortune that he'd made during his lengthy career. At the time of his death, he was wanted by police forces in France, Ireland, 
Holland and Morocco. And he was also still a top target for British police. Yet despite all those arrest warrants, it was always known, if you knew who to ask, exactly where he'd been living for the last two decades of his life. He did have help from Ben Coppers, a former crime associate, told a newspaper. He was also a very shrewd operator and had the money to pay for good lawyers. It would not have to be very difficult for the Spanish to arrest Green if they'd wanted to. There will always be some cynics who point the finger and say he got away with it for being a grass. But it's far more likely that the things he was wanted for in other countries simply wouldn't have stood up in a Spanish court where they have relatively liberal attitudes towards drugs. Much like the stories about his wads of cash and gold bars that are supposed to be hidden in the Spanish hills... It's unlikely we'll ever unearth the secret to Mickey Green's extraordinary ability to live as a free man. What we do know is that he was a master criminal who lived by his wits and who thoroughly enjoyed the spoils of his trade. He knew when to quit and when to run. And he also knew when to stand his ground and let people know exactly how tough he could be. Mr. Big, the octopus, the pimpernel. But in the end, he was just plain old Mickey Green. And perhaps that was his greatest gift. A criminal who never really paid for his crimes and managed to live to old age in a luxury villa with Anita by his side. Written by Jenny Friel, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited and narrated by me, Nicola Talent. This is a three-part Crime World special. The Life and Times of Mickey Green. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.